Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Podcast listeners, Al Martin here. Thank you. You made your way back. Uh, I appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate the, the producers as well. I never thank them enough. And I've got to thank Kate Main, and I've got to thank Steve Templeton. They do a terrific job. I appreciate all the work they put in. Today, I've got a terrific guest. As always, I've got Kim Smith. Kim Smith is the Global Vice President of Hybrid Cloud Services. She's at IBM, fellow IBMer, fellow change agent. She's an author. I don't know how to say this. It's like a UNCTAD speaker. I'd just say it like that. That's United Nations Commission for Trade and Development speaker. She's an executive board member, top 10 women in cloud. I want to understand more about that today. Top 10 game-changing female leaders. I want to understand more about that today. Introducing Kim Smith. Kim, thank you for coming to the podcast and talking to us and sharing us your wisdom. Hi, Al. It's great to hear your voice, and uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Well, give us a little bit about your background. Look, you come highly touted, and I want to get into a lot of those different areas, including women in technology. But if you wouldn't mind, start from square one and let us know where your experience has led you to and, and what brings you here. I have to say I'm, I've been pretty blessed with being given some really interesting paths in my career. I actually started out, I was working full-time in college to pay my way through college and uh, worked at DuPont in the Polymers Division in the data centers at 18, 19 years old, and then moved into financial services, worked in banking, risk management, and started to get into coding back in the late 80s, early 90s. It's a long time ago. But it was really an interesting time because that's when geographic information systems were coming about, um, user experiences were becoming more and more critical. And so launching things like the ATM environment so that you could get cash from anywhere at any time. That was a really interesting time because in financial services at that point in time in the juncture, they became more and more technology centric. It wasn't just about banking and moving money or getting a credit card or building out your equity through your portfolio of investments or getting a mortgage. It became about how can we use technology to improve the way that people live their lives. And that was always compelling for me. And so I spent about five years in financial services doing that, finished uh, school and went on to continue to work in the financial services sector building on business acquisitions and mergers, specifically focusing on how do you take advantage of this fintech space? How do you specifically look for opportunities and markets that really align with the culture of the company and the type of business that you want to drive forward? I feel like that anchored me. Being able to do risk management, focusing on the data behind a lot of the decisions that an organization would make made me really curious, really curious about what the future could hold for any type of organization. So I moved into consulting and I started working in multiple areas of focus, healthcare, life sciences, technology, manufacturing, and leveraging some of those skills that I pulled out of financial services around risk management, identifying new and 
compelling ways to look for opportunities to grow and transform business. And I spent a good deal of time doing that in the consulting world. And then Microsoft tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to, to join them in driving their business intelligence services in the early 2000s. And so I spent a good deal of time at Microsoft building out those types of solutions and technologies, working in both services and product business before uh, jumping back into consulting again. And for four or five years, really working to build joint ventures across different technology firms and business firms. So one of the great things that I loved doing was building out this industry immersive experience model with Adobe and Capgemini, where if you Google connected bag, Adobe, Kim Smith, you'll see that we built out these smart bag experiences where you could take a bag in a store, air bump your phone to it, put what you need in the bag. The concierge or the seller in the retail experience could actually give you things that were on your wish list so that you could go in the fitting room, try things on, on, put it back in the bag, pay for it, and walk out without ever standing in a queue. Those end-to-end experiences were really compelling, and it was all driven by data. And that was a, a good chunk of that next path in my career. And about four years ago, I joined IBM in helping to build out some of these same portfolios. So I guess I would say the common thread in my experience and my background has been curiosity around what motivates people? What motivates you to make decisions in your life? What are points of friction and the moments of truth that you're trying to live your life or to drive the business forward that you need to drive? And then how do you address those? What are the things that you can use via technology, via new business process, via transformational thinking to really come up with new ways to think of the art of the possible and then suspend disbelief long enough to let that art of the possible sneak in and let amazing things happen? Wow. It's almost like you had it well-spoken. You, you had that planned out. Nicely done. Everything you said kind of aligns with you know our whole theme of our podcast, which is making data simple. Of course, we go everywhere. We go into leadership and everything else like that. When you're originally coding, what did you code in? I'm just curious. Oh, SAS. Actually, it's so funny because I think I was the one of the youngest people at the time who won two white paper awards. It was 1996. And I remember speaking at their event at the time, uh, they have their, their global conferences, and it was really kind of interesting because I was coding and coming up with new ways to calculate risk management for optimizing for risk, which is the opposite of how most people use and codify risk management, especially in financial services at the time, where it was, where, where do you want to be really conservative about taking on risk? I flipped that on its head and said, we actually want to take on calculated risk. We, there is risk that's worthwhile. Let's figure out what the threshold for what that looks like, whether it's going into a new market in the financial services industry, whether it's identifying new services to make available in the healthcare industry, whether it's identifying new medications to make available in life sciences, or whether it's improving upon the experience of how you drive a car. There's calculated risks that you want to take on to be successful at breaking through the barriers toward transformation. And that's what SAS allowed me to do. I spent a lot of time coding in SAS. And, and I love the tools because at the time they were really leading edge in thinking about making data more simplistic to inform insightful decisions. Seems like you've got a long history in services one way or another. You came in and out, you've done some coding, except, but is it all 
in, in aggregate, how much of your time would you say has been spent in services? Well, I'd say it's about 50%. 50% of my time has been in product development, product management, product life cycle. And 50% of my time has been how do you make the most out of those products, whether it's adoption, uh, whether it's implementation, whether it's sustaining access to and you know, making the systems and the tools work together so that people can actually do their jobs and live their lives. So I'd say 50-50, really. Which side do you like more? <laughs> I, I will tell you, especially in what I'm doing today in the hybrid cloud services space, I get really jazzed about doing both. We just spent a couple of days working with IBM and Microsoft and thinking through where can we come together as, as you know as partners. And we're doing the same with all the other hyperscalers in the market right now. What, what I love about being in the space of working with products and services is you can think outside of the box. You can kind of break the traditional barriers of I'm a consultant and I need to make margin and my, my job is you and drive up as much service as possible and start to think about, no, that's really not what I want to do. What I want to do is add as much value as possible. And so if 100% of my time is about adding value, then you know you make your numbers. On the product side, it's how do we make this product as effective and differentiated as possible so that it has impact and value. So it's that shared value proposition that really gets me excited. I want to come back to that because I think that's a profound statement on the on the value statement. Uh, but I got to ask you this question. You, you talk about so many different experiences. This may be a deep question. Maybe I should save this for the end, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How do you continue to reinvent yourself? Oh, my gosh. I, just constantly learning from failures, mistakes, opportunities missed, great scenarios that... I live on a daily basis. If, if I get up and I'm trying to do something and something gets in my way of doing it, I kind of step back three steps and say, wait a minute, what was in my way? You know, if I'm looking at my calendar, my calendar tells me I have these five things going on today and I'm double booked. I, I think to myself, how did that happen? What are the three things I can do to make sure that doesn't happen again? So I spend a lot of time. I almost feel like, you know, internal algorithms and, and compute scenarios are around those calculated risk scenarios where I'll say, what's the best use of my time? and my energy? And how can I critical path this in a way that I can maximize the outcome that I want to drive? And it's not just about the results. It's about the experience. How do I want to feel today? What do I want to do? How can I add value to other people's lives? And that finds its way into how I can codify that, so to speak, in my job. And I think starting out early in, in engineering a business process and that marriage of those two things has really allowed me to apply that to say, okay, you know, how do I come up with new ways to think outside of the box? Nicely done. I can see why you're a keynote speaker. Well done. All right. So let's come back. So I, uh, as we talked like a couple of minutes, we only, folks, we only talked like maybe three minutes before we jumped out of the podcast. So you get this stuff live. I, I was mentioning that for the last two years, I've been in expert labs, which is a services or consulting arm of development where we make the product sticky within IBM software. Kim is in IBM Consulting, which, you know, drives solutions for, you know, I don't know, you can describe it maybe better than me, but drives solutions for like people like Microsoft, Fortune 100 customers, et cetera. One thing, and I want to go back to your comment on value. This is where I'm going, is when I came into services, like I've always worked with services, but owning the P&L for the last couple of years, I do find it's easy to get trapped exactly as you say. It's interesting you say it. Trapped, you know, because I came in, I see people worried about utilization, worried about, you know, P&L and different stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's all about value mm -hmm. and how much value you're going to bring to the table. So when people are coming to me with like pricing approvals and stuff like that, 
price is going up, it's going down. I'm, I, that's all I'm asking is value. What value are you you're bringing? You're taking away. And anyway, sometimes people can get in that trap. It's great to hear you talk about value. I'd like you to, if you could say more about that and what you've done in the organization to help drive value, because I think it's critical to success. In large-scale organizations and in small-scale organizations, it's really easy to get caught up in the bottom line or the end results that we're trying to achieve. If we don't identify multiple paths to get there that work for the people and the processes and the relationships that drive that acceleration, then we'll never get to the velocity that we need to achieve those results. Recently, had a great conversation with some of the Gartner analysts about some of our growth trajectory and potential. And I know for a fact we can do more. I know we can reach higher and we can stretch further. But I also know it's been a tough couple of years for a lot of people. And we can't lose sight of the fact that people really do matter. And what's going on in people's lives has become ubiquitous with how they do their jobs for every one of us. And so... Every day I have to get up and think about that bottom line. And at the same time, I ask myself questions about how people are doing, how my team is doing, how my leadership is doing, how their families are doing. And when I can connect the person and the experience and the relationship to the results, then I do a better job of focusing on the right things. If I spent all of my time hammering my teams on the numbers, that would be so draining. I just don't think that that's what hearts and minds get connected. Yeah, people to. don't get up in the morning to say, I'm going to go make revenue today. I mean, that or, may be the end goal, but yeah. Right. And, yeah. and they don't get up in the morning and say, oh, well, maybe they do. <laughs> How do I explain that I didn't hit this number or that I need these five things to hit my number? They've, we each do this. We, we step back and, and say, okay, well, I know these barriers are in my way, but how can I work around them? And how can I try to solve for this? And oftentimes as leaders, we can get caught up in, I don't care how you do it, just do it. And that's the wrong attitude. How you do it matters just as much as what the end result is, because you learn from those experiences and you can reuse and scale and amplify the successful path forward once you understand what motivates people and what motivates the organization as a whole to be set up for success. And that just comes down to good vision, good leadership. And quite frankly, if if I'm not removing roadblocks for everyone I work with on a daily basis, then I'm not adding value. Great. So what is your role in IBM Consulting today? How would you describe it? So I lead the relationship between our hybrid cloud services organization as a cloud platform leader for Microsoft around Azure, which is applications and infrastructure within a hybrid cloud. So if you think about what that looks like, it is everything from our advisory, our migration, modernization, and management services that support implementation of IBM products and services in conjunction with Microsoft products and services. And I also support where that plugs into other types of technologies and capabilities as well. Now, this is a massive growth area for a lot of organizations around the globe, especially when you think about the trajectory of what they've experienced over the last couple of years. Digital and cloud are becoming more pervasive much more quickly. We've gone through an existential change, right? And that existential change requires us to make that technology more simplistic and more affordable to be able to scale some of these complex environments. So we spend our time, and I specifically spend my time, helping organizations figure that out and making sure that we're, again, removing the roadblocks to get there. 
So give me an example of that, if you would. Obviously, we've leveraged your experience with Microsoft to help drive our hybrid cloud services, which is a perfect a match made in heaven on uh, against uh, Azure. But you know, for the folks that are listening, you talk about digital, you talk about cloud, what should we be thinking or what should they be thinking is they're thinking, hey, I need to modernize. I, I need to drive this digital transformation. I'm considering like Microsoft Azure cloud. What is your advice to them? I would say really explore containerization. You know, containerization and the concepts behind that allow for organizations to take massive sources of data and quantify and organize and structure access to that data in ways that you can't always predict how people are going to need it. And traditionally, what we've done in our experiences, you know, as technology providers around the globe is we create mainframes, we create server environments, we create data lakes, we create data warehouses, because we're always assuming that we can anticipate the way that people will need access to information. Well, the reality is that is absolutely not the case. You cannot predict where information is going to come from and the way people are going to need it. You need to make it as accessible as possible and as secure as possible. And sometimes those two things are diametrically opposed. And then it needs to be available at the touch of a finger. If I'm a salesperson, I'm a marketing person, I'm getting ready to go have a conversation with you know, a large-scale retailer or a healthcare provider or a, an automotive company, I want to, at my fingertips, be able to solve what problems they put in front of me very quickly. And when you think about what containerization does for organizations, is it automates a lot of what has been manually managed for organizations for decades. And what containerization allows you to do is it allows you to move specific capabilities, specific application use case scenarios across different methods of organization and access to that data, regardless of how you're going to use it. We will use our garage experiences and work with a company to look at tens of thousands of applications. And they're deciding, do we want to modernize it and put it in the cloud? Do we want to maintain it in our mainframe environment? Do we want to just maintain it on a private cloud or even on-premise? It is really difficult to think about all the scenarios of those 10,000 applications for what data you want, where, when, and how. And what containerization allows you to do is come up with different scenarios that work at a given point in time for a specific set of users and adjust as you go while still creating automated uh, what we call control panels or command and control centers so that you can maintain and manage how that data is moving from one place to another. You can do a better job of taking specific benefits of one application and connecting it to another application so you get a whole new use case scenario uh, that give people access to information or are able to make intelligent decisions much more quickly and effectively. Nice. I have my own point of view here, but this is your show, not mine. What does IBM, in your mind, have to offer in terms of containerization? I think there are three things that we have to offer. The first is our strength and our depth in the technologies between our own IBM technology and our Red Hat technology and some of the additional great examples of some of the boutique technology that we've added to the layers that we have. It really gives companies a choice. It gives them the alternatives that allow them to scale based on their own complexity and their use case scenarios. And frankly, the either the limitations or the velocity of movement they want to drive within their own environments. So that's the first thing. The second is the depth of our technical expertise and skills. You know, just this year alone, we skilled up over 
30,000 certifications just on Microsoft technologies. And we're an IBM company. I mean, you think about our technologies. We've made a commitment to all of these other big players in the market because we believe when we work together, there is growth potential and we can support the needs of the companies and the businesses that we're trying to set up for success in our partnerships with them. And so our skills blows me away. Do you know we have more women than any other company in the world that have patents? Our commitment to our technology and our people and the, the ubiquitous nature of our diversity and inclusion is so profound. We're scaling up 30 million people by 2030. That's tremendous. That tells you our commitment to making the world a better place, to really allowing technology to become ubiquitous in all of our lives. And then the third thing is our commitment to ecosystem. And it, it kind of ties to the second point that I made. You know, we are building out partnerships of all sizes and scales. So no matter what you do, whether you're a startup, whether you're a developer, whether you're a large scale tech company, we have food trust, for example, where companies from all sectors sit at the table and help us figure out how do we make food safe? And that is so compelling. I think about the fact that this company has put people on the moon and we've made food and environment safe for every person uh, that we touch. And at the same time, we provide career paths regardless of where you come from and what you do. So I look at that and say, this is the most incredible environment to work in that I've ever had the chance to experience. Fantastic. Look, I'm glad you mentioned diversity and our commitment to the community and the, and the betterment of humankind. You're like a, uh, an advertiser for IBM. You're getting me pumped up here. I like it. That's why I'm still here. But going back to the uh, containerization, you know, what does IBM have to offer? Here's what I heard and make sure I got it right. One is the the technical depth, particularly around our choice of Red Hat. Uh, secondly, technical expertise, diversity included. And number three, the ecosystem uh, surrounded the, the first two. Did I exactly. get it right? You nailed it. <laughs> See, I'm learning here today. All right. Very good. Hey, do you think you know, IBM has made a conscious choice around Red Hat and Kubernetes as a choice of that containerization. Uh, right choice? Obviously, you're IBM, but, you know, look, we're a free podcast. I mean, can you say why do you think that's the right choice, if, if so? Well, I will point out that it's not the only choice. Uh, I, I would say that while we place bets on our own technology, we are hyper aware of the fact that companies that we work with have different needs. And so while Kubernetes and specifically what we call, you know, OpenShift on Azure as an example, or any of our OpenShift environments with any of the hyperscalers, including our own products, have different flavors. And we really do have to meet companies where they are in their own evolution, in their own trajectory. So for example, Red Hat and Linux, that is an area that we're seeing come up more and more. Uh, AKS with Microsoft is another scenario. OCP, all these scenarios absolutely can come up in just one set of implementations. And so what we try to do is step back and maintain, yes, we have products that we need and want to sell, and we have to maintain an agnostic view and focus on the partnership that we have with the company that we're working with and figuring out what makes the right solution for them at the right time. And there certainly have been scenarios where we've identified that something has to happen first before they can consider a Kubernetes or um, a Red Hat OpenShift scenario or model. 
But we work through every one of those steps to figure out what makes sense at a given time. And I will say, usually where it starts is with the data. And so what we're actually trying to do is, as opposed to just saying we're only placing bets here, is step back and say, let's invest in things like Cloud Pack for data. Because if we can do a better job of collectively helping an organization figure out the critical path of what they need when they need it, the calculated risk of where they want to go and how they're going to get there, the velocity of change that they want to drive, then each of those scenarios will fall into place accordingly. And we use our garage experiences. And we have some clients with 20, 30, 40 different garages, and they're working through these scenarios all at once. They could have a multitude of Kubernetes scenarios that they're trying to implement with the goal of getting to one place that gives them kind of a best of breed model. So I I will say that, you know, there are certainly scenarios where Kubernetes makes sense, where an organization wants a fully managed environment. They don't want to self-manage. They don't want heavy lifting in their IT infrastructure. They want to automate as much as possible. That is an ideal situation when we're working with our Red Hat counterparts and our Red Hat product set, because it does a great deal of automation around DevSecOps, and it minimizes the requirements for the level of manual intervention required by an IT organization. And a lot of companies aren't ready for that right out of the gate. So we have that kind of stair-step process that we can work with them to figure out what makes sense at the right time, and quite frankly, for how they want to run their business. I'm glad you say it starts with the data. I, I believe that as well. That's the way we've thought about changing the name of this podcast. I don't know how many times, but making data simple is like, you know, look, I work with a coach right now and she'll say it starts with the data, right? Because you got to get to know yourself. And, and sometimes what you say and what you do are different. So you compare the two and say, yeah, I am kind of that way, aren't I? Anyway, so, I mean, everything starts with the data. Hey, but what use cases are you working on most of the time? Or what solutions are you working on? I mean, I, I, we talk about containerization. We talk about... Uh, Microsoft Cloud, we talk about technical expertise, but what about use cases? Well, I, you know, I'll call one out in particular. There are a lot that are relevant to specific industries. You know, we think about government, financial services, oil, gas, energy, retail. They're, those are all hot areas right now, manufacturing, driving, everything from IoT to you know, diverse ways to implement AI and then all the technology behind that. But I would say one of the most critical right now, not only critical for us, but as you talked about, UNCTAD, is how we pronounce it, which is the Commission for Trade and Development for the United Nations. And I was wondering, I'm sorry. (laughs) Those panels in the Commission for Science, Technology and Innovation, uh, sustainability comes up more and more. And so what we're seeing is that, you know, as you know, within IBM, we have 31 plus principles around sustainability sustainability for everything that we do, not just our people, but our processes and our technology as well. And where we marry that with the other technology players that we work with in our ecosystem and our clients, we're finding more and more that many companies within their annual reports within what they report to the analyst community. They're very much focused on the sustainable development goals that the United Nations has set forth. And in fact, many of them are starting to measure their business like that. We do that here at IBM. We have a policy lab that focuses on, you know, how do we maintain fidelity for making the world a better place? and make money. And I think uh, Dr. Chantaline Carpenter, who is the chief of trade and development for UNCTAD in New York, has been working on this for several years now as she built out those sustainable development goals. And that is, she says, I want CEOs to care about the fact they have a responsibility to make the world a better place while they're making money. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. And so 
where I spend most of my time are areas that provide that profitability margin for companies while it allows them to show up as good corporate citizens and become a values-based organization so that they can execute against their business imperatives while making the world a better place. Very, very good. Do you see your first mission is to advising clients or consulting with these clients so they make the right choice? Is that what you spend your day job on most of the time? I think so. Well, I'd say I spend my day job in three areas, Uh, obviously advising and and working closely with those relationships and helping our clients, you know, at the executive levels, figure that out, but building our teams so that we can execute against this. You know, this is new ground for a lot of companies. And so we are blazing trails and we're just trying to make sure that we actually pave the way and aren't creating debt ends. So I spent a lot of time with our teams figuring out this is really important. And if we're going to build out a new way of driving an open shift model with a client in a specific industry, then how does that scale into another industry? Kind of blurring the lines between sectors so that we can improve upon what we do. And the third area is, you know, really engaging and building those relationships within IBM in our ecosystem so that we can improve what we do. That closed loop feedback is extremely helpful. And I have to take it in and then I have to share it so that we can all improve where we are and where we go and how we get there. How does this engagement start? I mean, and then progress. I mean, how does it work? I mean, I understand exactly what you're saying, but how does somebody cold call you? I mean, how do you? No, it's, it's so interesting you mentioned that because it could come from a multitude of places. I will say that it usually starts with a relationship, whether it's a relationship with someone from Gartner or, you know, speaking at and running events at the United Nations. Many of these executives are there. We have these conversations through some of those connections and relationships. But, you know, we all build networks. We, we all have strong relationships, but getting the word out and being able to put some thought leadership around it is usually what gets people's attention. And then they want to talk about it. I don't get a lot of cold calls per se, but I do get a lot of referrals uh, where someone's talked to someone and they know that this is an area of focus for us as IBM, or they know that I've worked with other technology areas and and want to get a perspective on things. Uh, I would also say that we have a very strong and deep set of relationships with hundreds and hundreds of companies around the globe that we've been working with for 30, 40, 50 years or more. And we've been involved in multitudes of transformations with and for them. So those relationships that our account executives have, that our technical teams have, usually are where that starts. We we build credibility based on where we've been in our incumbency, and then we grow and we scale and, and we transform with companies from there. You've mentioned a couple times in this podcast already, and by the way, podcast is probably another way you can get the message out, but uh, you've mentioned a couple times the garage experience. Mm -hmm. Why is it important? How do you use it? How does IBM use it? You know, it's so compelling. Having worked with so many technology companies and organizations that build innovation labs, uh, that build innovation exchanges, having built them myself at multiple companies. What I find most compelling about the garage experience is that it is driven by and led by an organization and the commitment and the trajectory that that organization wants to implement and accept and adopt change. So what ends up happening is we start from a place of design thinking. And design thinking really anchors you in the art of the possible and what could be, not where you are. Thinking outside of the box through a design thinking method and framework, there's a significant piece of it that's psychological. It requires us to rewire our brains from where we think we can go to not having 
any assumptions to walking in and being a completely growth mindset individual as you're working through the scenarios for your business. And then from there, we work our way back into, you know, where are we now and what's it going to take to get from that art of the possible of what you think can happen versus, you know, we've got all these things in our way to get there. And we use some pretty incredible techniques to figure out now where are the leapfrog opportunities? Where's kind of the back to the future where you can just kind of zip through and get to a place of, hey, all those blockers just go away. If you jump over A, B, C, and you do this, that, and the other, then, you know, a perfect example is we'll bring in startups where a company may not have had a solution in a given area, let's say um, packaging foods and products and pushing them out the door in a way that competes with one of the biggest, I will say, marketplaces that are on the planet today, right? And maybe they're not as familiar with startups that can help with boutique capabilities that could accelerate that experience, whether it's the digital component of the experience, whether it's access to transportation and commission, whether it's partnering with someone like um, Hertz to come up with a new method for delivery, uh, similar to maybe an Uber Eats or a, a DoorDash. So it's, you know, those are the kind of concepts that you come up with. You think outside of the box, but then introducing nascent technologies and what I would say wave three players in conjunction with large scale technology, and then starting to implement that MVP, that minimum viable product scenario tens and thousands of times over. Typically what ends up happening in innovation labs is you maybe test two or three scenarios at a time. You walk it all the way through, you do some A-B testing, you come back and revisit again. We do it at much bigger scale. And so what that does is you check in on so many scenarios at once, and then you start to look for patterns in those scenarios. What we offer those organizations is that's the environment. We set up the environment, we orchestrate, we engage with them, we provide the technical expertise, but they own it. And when we introduce net new capabilities, whether it's ours or someone else's, that organization has the ability to buy, borrow, or, you know, or quite frankly, be in a position where they could actually take it on and acquire that and incorporate it in everything that they do. And so it's the depth and breadth of all that unique capability that we have access to that we bring to those garage experiences. Has COVID slowed the garage concept down any? Actually, we moved within less than 60 days of when COVID hit, we were moving our garage experience into digital and virtual. And what was really compelling about that is we, we actually saw an uptick in engagement because now there weren't the restrictions of, well, how do we get all these people in the room? How do we get them working together? Uh, we started to see a significant uptick in collaboration and attention and focus by building out those digital environments, by making cloud experiences readily available, by using collaborative online tools. Uh, we started to see actually more results come out of those garages much more quickly. So that begs the question. So if that's true, do you consider, will they be virtual in the future? Even when oh, we all come back? I, I believe, well, yes, we will always have that virtual capability in the future, but there's also benefit of bringing people together. And so we're hopeful. And, and in some environments that is already happening, where having that physical experience is, is not a bad thing, especially when you're dealing with commoditized products um, that you want to get your hands on and you want to actually touch in conjunction with some of the digital capabilities. So I think the hybrid approach is the approach that seems to work very well. You can kick off with some of the virtual, you can move into a, a real physical experience, you can maintain through that virtual experience and scale it more readily, but there's no reason why we can't do both. So what I'm hearing you say is 
So we, we would start with like a strategy dialogue based on use case, by example. We would bring that in perhaps to a garage environment, probably virtual today, where we would do a design thinking session and then progress that to, I don't know, proof of technology, proof of concept, demo it, and then you're off to the races. There's a differentiation between strategy and design thinking. Strategy assumes that you've got a goal and you're going to go after that goal. Design thinking says you're really going to rethink what your aspirations could be versus limitations you might be setting on yourself today. That makes sense. Did makes I sense. There? Good distinction. No, I'm glad you say. It. I'm also glad you mentioned growth mindset. I'm huge on growth mindset. I love that book. It's what you know. There's so many books that change your life. I define a book that's changed my life if it changes me. In other words, it changed my behavior day to day. That mindset by Quick Carol Dweck is one of those those books. That is a, that is a fantastic book for sure. For sure. I, I look at somebody sometimes when I meet them, and then I can see where their heads at based on what I what I learned in that book. Hey, so we're heading to the new year, and I think this all kind of culminates into. As we head into 2022, which is freaking amazing to begin with, but heading into 2020, what do you think the top technology trends are going to be? I'm going to step back and and answer that in two ways. The first, I'm going to start with the trends that are going to impact and influence the type of technology. And then I'll talk a little bit about the technology. One of the things that we've really seen and I specifically have experienced as a leader is the fact that this concept of dynamic delivery it really facilitates seamless collaboration regardless of where you are. Never, ever has it been as important as it is today for us to be 24-7 available. I have teams all over the world, as yes, you do as well, I'm sure. And in order to create that concept of seamless collaboration, we and we talked about the garage a little bit, we have to think about things like that are influencing every organization, every person on the planet. Things like contactless delivery, things like the fact that we now have humans fully immersed in the network and the technology that looking at shifting to personal accountability in how we implement and think about technology because virtual leadership and engagement becomes important. We have to set global talent standards in a completely different way. We have to have ubiquitous knowledge management and interconnection of our digital knowledge platforms and processes at levels and scales that we never had to have before. And then foundationally, we have to think about the fact that if we don't have resilient and scalable infrastructure, if our platforms aren't pervasive, no matter where you sit, no matter where you live, no matter where you're doing work, and we're not embedding security and privacy in everything we do, then the technology will fail. It will not meet the needs of the world and where we are today. And so I would say that you know it is a combination and an amalgamation of the technologies that work best together in an open environment that allow people to do all of the things that I just talked about in a way that's seamless and impactful. Uh, There's less tolerance for doing something just for the sake of doing it. There's more focus on what is the purpose of what we're trying to achieve? What will this technology provide me with? And how can I get there across those different areas that I just called out? So I would say that AI with intention, you know, really focused on ethics-based AI, 
Uh, our own privacy officers have talked about some of this at length, and we've spent a lot of time and energy in our technology in ensuring that we have unbiased AI experiences. That's critical. That is one of the biggest areas of investment to think about. Uh, the second is the marriage of cloud with data and making sure that we're taking a look at business transformation services that are informed by hybrid cloud experiences, because not everything is going to go into cloud 100%. And if we don't embed the right security and privacy practices, then there's a good chance there's going to be a breach. And we've seen a lot of breaches in the last 18 months that okay. we never would have expected, right? So I, I would say, you know, those are the areas of focus. And some of the technologies, I would say, are the obviously the open shift technologies. We're seeing more and more focus in those areas. Um, we're seeing much more focus on, as, as we talked about data and AI and some of the boutique capabilities around AI experiences that are very relevant for specific business use cases like sustainability. And I would say the third area of technology advancement and focus is really going to be around moving business productivity into use case experiences that become ubiquitous, whether I'm buying something online or whether I'm in the position where I'm trying to manage large teams across the globe. I want to use the same tool set. I want to use the same you know, way to collaborate so that, that who I am as a person becomes a 360 degree view of how I spend my time and, and what I put my energy toward. Very good insight. Any predictions in 2022, technology-wise or people-wise, you whatever you can make any prediction you want. I I think that I would say that we're going to see more and more technologies coming together to solve for immersive experiences. Uh, gone are the days where there are going to be so many big players staying in one box. If you look at the telco community currently and how they become the digital concierge for every one of us. We all live and die on our phones, right? And the, and the streaming experiences that we have and the partnerships that have come together to make that possible, it blurs the lines of industry and sector. That is going to continue to happen. That is how organizations are going to transform themselves and future-proof where they need to go. So I, I think we're going to be more and more interestingly, um, pleasantly surprised by a company moving out of a box we thought they were in and expanding into others to become a lead player in a whole new world. I think that's a good prediction. Uh, the integration today, you'd think it'd be solved by now, but you know, we're just scratching the surface, right? And uh, I think if anything COVID's done is put us into the virtual world, everything does have to, to work together. So I think it's improved those technologies, but really put the importance on that integration. Every client that I meet with, and you said it earlier, is working on a 360 degree view. At IBM, we continue to advance our own 360 degree view to better our customer experience. I think that 360 degree view is like the strategy, the design point that everybody's marching to, at least yeah. as, as far as I can tell. You know, Alan, I think that leads to another point, which there's no tolerance for arrogance in the tech world anymore. There just isn't. And I, I think that the, you know, having humility and a humble perspective on servant leadership and what it takes as a, as a technology provider to enable and empower is really where people's heads are. And, you know, gone are the days where you see the, the big players fighting for market share in such an aggressive way that it's, you know, it, it becomes beholden to the individual who runs the company. There's no tolerance for that anymore. And frankly, I think that's a good thing. 
I totally agree. That, that's a good tweetable set. No tolerance for arrogance in the tech world. I love it. Nicely done, uh, Kim. I do want to ask you a couple questions on uh, top 10 women in cloud. And I want to get to that in the last five minutes. So sure. in terms of doing so, anything that I missed, though, on the IBM consulting, the gig right now that yeah, I didn't ask, you say, well, I wanted to get this out. I got to say this. No, you know, I, I would just say that we are so excited about what the future holds and the strength of this part of our company and, and how we're coming together with not only with our IBM product teams, but but all of our ecosystem partners out there to, to just be there and, and help our clients in providing more value and think about the future of where their business is going. And so those partnerships are just so critical to our success. I, I'm just excited to be here. Yeah, very good. You and me both. Uh, say more on the top 10 women in cloud and the top 10 game-changing female leaders. That's pretty awesome. I don't know what to say about that. I, I feel you know very blessed for the for the recognition, and there are so many women and men leaders. I mean, there's just been a multitude of leaders that have led the way for me. I, I've had my own personal board of directors for 20 plus years now, and they keep me honest and and you know keep my ego in check and help me think outside of the box and, and improve myself. I, my daughter does that every day. It's always good to have a teenager to keep you in check. As yeah, well. they'll keep you in check. Um, That's right. <laughs> I, I would just say that you know, Women in Cloud is one of the most incredible organizations that I've ever had the opportunity to work with in this capacity. And the reason is the focus is economic empowerment for women-led businesses. And when you think about E-Trade for All, which is what the United Nations has implemented, having countries prioritize diverse businesses in relationships, like if Walmart is going to open a business in Canada, they need to have a certain percentage of their business and their supply chain led by a diverse marketplace. And by setting those standards, what the UN does is it sets the bar for companies to step up. What's great about that is most companies aren't just stepping up, they're redefining what that looks like. And so what Women in Cloud does is it brokers those relationships. It, it helps set policy uh, in markets, you know, in Washington state alone, finding a billion dollars for women-led businesses during mm -hmm. covid Women were hit hardest in the job sector. I mean, think about what they've had to take on as challenges, what we all have had to take on as, as families. Um, and more often than not, female leaders, female-led businesses were the ones that were most impacted and had to close or had to shut down or lost a, a ton of money. And so what, what Women in Cloud does is it creates the platform, the marketplace, the access, um, the policy to stand up women-led businesses and diversity-led businesses to be set up for success. It's that first tranche, it's that first 18 months of getting out there and getting present that sets an organization up for success. And, and they create all the right connections with organizations like Microsoft and IBM and the United Nations and large-scale companies and creating those marketplaces and those accelerators for women-led businesses. You know, I talked about garages before. Think about some of those startups coming in and, and they get an infusion of cash or they get bought by a large-scale company based on their capabilities. Oftentimes, those businesses are led by men. And this opens you know, the floodgates to let all types of businesses get that exposure right out of the gate. When I read your profile, there was a line that I was going to ask you a question on, but I think I've answered it now. It said, delivering groundbreaking billion-dollar business solution, a way of nurturing stories of awesomeness. <laughs> and I thought, well, now I know where those stories of awesomeness come from. You, you've done a terrific job. I appreciate you being here. Hey, before I let you go, what do you do for fun? Oh, my gosh. 
everything I do for fun requires a helmet. I, <laughs> I have to admit, you know, I'm a snowboarder, I kayak, I've, wow. I've limited some mountains in my day. Um, I, I just love being outdoors, uh, spend time with my family and, and, and just enjoy life. Uh, life is very short for all of us, as we know, and anything I can do to not only be challenged cerebrally and physically, I find really develops my growth mindset. Where are you located? I'm actually out of the Seattle area in Kirkland, Washington. So I'm a stone's throw from Google, Amazon, and Microsoft, as well as Starbucks and Costco. There's some big names out here. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you, Kim, for being on. I greatly appreciate it. Kim Smith, everybody, you've done a terrific job. Very well spoken. Thank you for being here. I probably hit you back after you your speaking engagement. What you said in January, sometime third week in yeah, January. Yeah, yeah, we've got some uh, CEOs. Stay tuned. Names to be announced for a leadership conference for the United Nations coming up uh, the last two weeks in January. Perfect. So stay tuned, Al, and love to invite you. Love to see you there. You, you can count on me. Thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Al. I really appreciate your time. I hope you have a great holiday. You do the same. Do the same. Hey, thanks for all those listeners out there. As always, I ask you to rate us on whatever your flavor of choice and hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. Thank you. I hope you had a great holidays. Thank you. And I'll see you on the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out.